Previously on Killing Lorenzen. A warning, this contains explicit language. The Los Angeles Clippers select Lorenzen Wright from the University of Memphis. What's that like, sitting and waiting and, and then finding out you're going out west? I mean, the emotions that went along with this? Oh man, you know, you're sitting there and it seems like you're waiting for years for your name to be called. And when you're called, this is the greatest feeling in the world. I said, Lorenzen. I've been meaning to tell you this for a long time. I said, you cannot turn a whore into a housewife. I see nothing but the demise of his career now. I said, Lorenzen, if you take her to California with us, with you, she's going to be the death of you. Well, it was like, it was like five million over a three-year period. I think that's what it was, 5.4 million for three years. He was making over a million dollars a year. Are you saying he was still living paycheck to paycheck? I'm saying that, in a sense, yes. Yes. Because of kind of, there was no accountability. He didn't want to get married? He didn't ask her to marry him. She asked him. No, she said, less. Not with you, less get married. Less. But they had been together for a long time. Yep, right? and she had pussy with him. The year was 2001, and sports history would be forever changed in Memphis, Tennessee. NBA! This is the image you'll soon be seeing all over town. The Grizzlies unveiled their new logo at their coming out party to a crowd of hundreds at Peabody Place. The Bluff City was now home to an NBA franchise, and even better, a son of Memphis was coming home to help lead the team. Memphis own Lorenzen Wright is glad the team left the cold of Vancouver and its fans and decided to come out of hibernation in Memphis. It's very exciting. Though. I'm looking forward to the game. My family's all happy and ready to see the game. I can't wait to get out there and play it. But Lorenzen Wright's return to Memphis didn't mean leaving behind the ongoing problems with his marriage and his money. But I will say this much. She was a hoe. So you're not denying that um, Lorenzen was cheating too. But they got to prove it. Prove it. Lorenzen's biggest problem, he didn't know how to cut people off. And when tragedy struck the family, some say it marked the beginning of the end. That changed his whole everything. I think that changed his whole marriage, his whole thought process. I, I, I believe that's when everything went down. I'm Zanetta Lowe. And I'm April Thompson. This is Killing Lorenzen. Love, Basketball, Murder. Episode 4, Till Death Do Us Part. It's no secret, Memphis takes its three Bs seriously. That's blues, barbecue, and basketball. But there's something else you should know about the city. It's a place where people work hard for what they have sometimes keeping two, even three jobs to make ends meet. Words like hustle and grind come to mind, and the city has a bit of a chip on its shoulder. So when the Vancouver Grizzlies were looking to move their NBA team to a new city and Memphis made the short list, it seemed too good to be true. I think Memphis uh, still had that underdog mentality, oh, we're never going to get an NBA team. You see, Memphis had been trying to land a pro sports team since the 1990s. The former Houston Oilers played football here for one season in 1997 before leaving for Nashville and becoming the Tennessee Titans. Plus, as former WREG sports director Glenn Carver explains, 
there was the matter of money. And it took uh, city leaders to, to really rally behind it because there are a lot of people in Memphis, just average taxpayer, that didn't want it. Why are we putting this money into this when we have so many other problems? When the pursuit team said we're going to bring an NBA team to town, it wasn't greeted with, woohoo, this is great. It was like, what? You're going to what? Jeff Calkins is a sports columnist and radio host. What people don't remember is, is that how unpopular the Grizzlies were early. Um, there was this huge debate over um, whether to build an arena for the Grizzlies. And if the truth is, if you had put it to a vote, it would have failed resoundingly. Want to know what local business people think about the prospects of an NBA team downtown? Suhair Log of the Little Tea Shop did, so a week ago she started conducting an informal poll. The NBA, yay or nay? The nays have it, but it's close. You know, some of the notes I can't even let you read it or put it on TV. There are signs all over town in people's yards that said no taxes, NBA. The least, the, 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 I wrote a series of columns saying they should build FedEx Forum, probably the least, least popular, most unpopular columns I've ever written. People were, they had just built the pyramid, they had, it was only 10 years old at the point. Now what, we're going to build another arena with public money? The pursuit team, known as NBA Now, continues to talk up the NBA. And when they talk, people listen. Some even changed their minds. We're winning people every day. Despite those initial concerns about building a new arena, let alone filling it to capacity, in March of 2001, Grizzlies owner Michael Heisley announced they'd chosen Memphis. Uh, but it happened. Uh, they agreed to build FedEx Forum, and Michael Heisley got everything he wanted. And, and I think the city, I think most people would say the city's better off now because we landed that team, because we have FedEx Forum. And it is a jewel. NBA! Now all of that's behind us, and we're able to turn the project over to people like Billy Knight and Sidney Lowe and get them to get us a winner in Memphis. This is the image you'll soon be seeing all over town. The Grizzlies unveiled their new logo at their coming out party to a crowd of hundreds at Peabody Place. There's a grizzly bear mascot on the stage flanked by balloons and behind it a backdrop featuring a logo with the word Memphis in red font, grizzlies in green, and the bear claw is holding onto a red ball. Nothing like today's team colors featuring blue and a hint of yellow. And there was another surprise in store for fans that day. You're an Indian veteran, you play the Grizzly trade. Certainly one of the happiest days of your life. Lorenzen Wright stood up, raised both hands, and pointed toward the crowd and smiled. Grizzlies general manager Billy Knight handed him a jersey as he walked on stage. Former Memphis basketball star Lorenzen Wright became the first player to get one in front of his hometown fans. If I wouldn't have been on the team, I think I would have been out there on the in the crowd trying to cheer it on because I'm excited about being here. I'm excited about the team being here. It's just great. By the time the Grizzlies traded for Lorenzen in the summer of 2001, he played five seasons in the NBA, three with the Los Angeles Clippers and two with the Atlanta Hawks. Here's more of what he had to say that day when talking with WREG News Channel 3 about his role as a veteran on the new team. Oh, yeah, I was surprised. You know, now things are just starting to happen in Atlanta, and, you know, I'm, I'm going to miss those guys. You know, I love those guys. You know, they were a great home, but they traded me back home, and I'm, I'm happy. You know, I, I need a chance. You know, I just need minutes. I get better with, with time. It's <laughs> just like wine, and I'm just going to try to work hard and supply as much things as I can for this team. That work ethic is one of the very reasons the Grizzlies wanted Lorenzen. Here's former GM Billy Knight. He worked as an NBA executive for decades and is now retired living in Atlanta. We spoke with him by phone. 
Tell me about uh, the decision to trade for Lorenzen and how you got to know him as a player. Well, you know, I got to know Lorenzen back when I was with the Pacers when he when he was drafted into the NBA out of college. Um, you know, you go through this whole process of doing the background work on players and uh, finding about the finding out about their personalities and their habits, their you know, obviously their playing ability and their their styles and those things. And so I did a lot of background work when I was with the Pacers on Lorenz and Wright because, you know, we were in a position, we didn't know if we were going to be in a position to take him or not, but um, it didn't work out that way. But I did get to know him that way. I got to know him pretty well just going through that background process. And I, I liked what I saw. And I remembered that. So when Lorenzen, um, when Memphis traded that very first year before they took the court, traded and it involved getting Pau Gasol, uh, the pick from Atlanta, along with Lorenzen. At that point, he had established himself as a big NBA player. So, But you not only had, oh, Memphis loves Lorenzen, but he's a viable NBA player. So we're not only getting the hometown hero back, we're getting a really good NBA player. For a city that embodies hard work, Lorenzen's story was a perfect reflection of its values, a true tale of rags to riches. He'd grown up poor in rural Mississippi, moved to Memphis, and completed a trifecta that only a few can claim. He'd played high school basketball in Memphis, college ball at the University of Memphis, and was now back in the Bluff City to play for his hometown Grizzlies. He'd spent years away, but maintained a presence through his family and charity work in Memphis. And it didn't hurt that the Grizzlies were getting a charismatic guy known for his trademark smile. Glenn Carver recalls interviewing Lorenzen again for the first time that summer. So they had uh, some folks at the uh, Peabody that brought them down for interviews. Very informal. It was just in a room. They did some quick little formal thing, but it was just a, almost a breakout. Everybody start grabbing interviews with who you can. And I remember going up to Lorenzen. I hadn't seen him in... Uh, I guess five years because, you know, he drafted by the Clippers, so he's out in L.A., West Coast, those games are late, no one's staying up to watch him. He goes to Atlanta, they're not doing much. So you casually kept up with him, and we would follow him through highlights, but I hadn't seen him in probably five years or so. And it was just a madhouse, and everybody's scrambling to get interviews. And I went up and said, you know, Lorenz and Glenn Carver, and he stopped me and said, Mr. Carver, what makes you think I don't remember you? And that was nice because, you know, so many – you make it and you forget and all that. And it was just very nice. I uh, would just that smile never left his face. And so Lorenzen helps connect the city to that franchise that was, I've never seen a city that gets an ex, a, a team move there and is less welcoming to it. Um, but now Lorenzen's playing on that team. You're like, Oh, Lorenzen's on that team. We can love Lorenzen. Um, and so he became sort of one of the, the key things that connected Memphis to the Grizzlies franchise. Besides Lorenzen, that first Grizzlies roster included Nick Anderson, Jason Williams, Shane Battier, and Pal Gasol. It may be hard for today's Grizzlies fans to imagine someone with the last name Gasol not being a household name. But that wasn't the case when the Grizzlies first moved to town. He was the face of that team as much as anyone else. They also got they drafted Shane Battier, and people recognized Shane Battier. People wondered who this skinny little Spaniard was, Pau. They didn't know him, knew Pau Gasol from any. They didn't ever heard of Pau Gasol, but they knew Lorenzen. 
and they knew Shane. They knew Lashane, they knew Lorenzen. And then, um, and then so, so Lorenzen comes in, and um, he's a familiar face, and he, he also really, and Pow will tell you this, he taught Pow how to be an NBA player. Like, he was really tough on Pow in practice, and, and Pow was a really skinny, obviously Pow's going to be in the Hall of Fame, and he's tremendous, multiple NBA champion now. But at the time, he was the skinny kid from Spain, and Lorenzi, Lorenzen was, would, would push him around in practice and would, would, um, would teach him how to be a tough pro. That sort of was part of his, in addition to connecting Memphis to the franchise, he really brought Pow along and helped develop Pow into the player um, that he ultimately became. The Memphis Grizzlies opened their inaugural season in November of 2001 to a packed house at the Pyramid. Like everyone else in town, WREG News Channel 3 was there too. A banner on the Pyramid welcomes NBA fans to the Grizzlies' new den. Memphis' own Lorenzen Wright is glad the team left the cold of Vancouver and its fans and decided to come out of hibernation in Memphis. Oh, it's very exciting. I'm looking forward to the game. My family's all happy. And ready to see the game. I can't wait to get out there and play. That's the first dunk he made when he came to the Grizzlies. Yep, 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 that boy right there was something, something. Lorenzen's mother, Deborah Marion, has pictures all over the front room of her home. Besides the dunk she just mentioned, there's another poster-sized picture of Lorenzen and Shane Battier that sits on the floor. Deborah took us back to the moment she learned her son was coming home. Ooh, honey, that was like, ooh, wait, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Only thing I can say that whole week, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. I was glad, because a lot of people weren't going to be able to go see him, you know, nowhere like from Mississippi. He here, they can come up here from Mississippi. And what was his reaction when he found found out he was getting traded to the Grizzlies? He was going to get to come home? Oh, he was ecstatic. Oh, he couldn't wait. What he going to do when he get home? He going to do this? He going to start this? Oh, he just so ecstatic. He wanted to come home. For real. Then I won't have to worry about you traveling and getting to me. You're right. Lorenzen made good on that promise of starting something. He opened a business, Lorenzen Wright Sports Cafe. The logo was a big orange basketball with his number 42 in the middle. I hope it's, you know, I want it to be a family restaurant. So I want the people to bring their kids, let them mingle around, you know, see some of my pictures and things that I have hanging up on the walls and have a great time. As for the Grizzlies, the team had a rough start, but that didn't matter to those close to Lorenzen, like his former Booker T. Washington teammate Antonio Harris and his coach Fred Horton. And I was so glad when he got traded back to Memphis. And I was like, wow. I said, man, just imagine you can actually put on a Grizzly. That's when the Grizzly had just relocated, where they just had got here uh, from uh, Vancouver. I was like, this is going to help the fans come and support the team now because we have one of our own. And it was a proud moment for me, a proud moment for a lot of people to see that. Picture of Lorenzo playing for the Memphis Grizzlies. What was that like? It was a good feeling. You have professional basketball in Memphis and a hometown boy comes home. Right. It's a good feeling. Did you go see him play sometimes? Oh, man. <laughs> Did I? Wouldn't have missed it. Wouldn't have missed it. It was around the same time that Booker T. Washington retired Lorenzen Wright's jersey. Here's some audio from that night, including Lorenzen speaking right before a game. We appreciate it. We got a lot of fans in 
It was the best times of my basketball career. And I just want to thank all y'all for this. This is great. And I appreciate everything from Coach Horton and his team. And, you know, I want these guys to get out here and win this game tonight. Lorenzen once again had a full life on and off the court. He made more than $11 million in his first two seasons with the Grizzlies. His family had long maintained a presence in Memphis, but this time settled into a large home in South Bend, an exclusive gated community on a golf course. By 2002, his wife Shara had given birth to five children. There was Lorenzen Jr. and Lauren, followed by twin boys, Lamar and Shamar, and then a baby girl, Sierra Simone. One in a million children. If he'd have had a million children, he'd have been the happiest man alive. That's Lorenzo Cersei. He's one of Lorenzen's namesakes and brother to Lorenzen's grandmother, Louise Vassar. We met up with him during one of our trips to Oxford. Okay, so we are on County Road. Where are we? County Road 328 outside of Oxford. Basically, it's Oxford, but it's a little south of town. We are following... Mr. Lorenzo Cersei, who is Lorenzen's uncle. We had his name written down, but found him because we went to a barber shop looking for somebody else. And they said, oh, we'll call, just call Mr. BB. That's his nickname. So we are pulling into his house now. It's amazing how people in this right. community know each other. So it's not hard to kind of track people down. Hi! Now do you remember? I do remember you. How are you doing? <laughs> well, I don't think we ever would have found this house, so it's a good thing no, you came together. No, it's in the middle of nowhere, but I love it. Mr. and Mrs. Cersei welcomed us in, and he was delighted to share his memories of Lorenzen. He wanted a big family, and he loved his family. Why do you think that meant so much to him? <sighs> you know, I think from my personal experience and his watching him, I think when you grow up and you grow up hard, you don't have that, I wanna say this right, you don't have, I won't say you don't have family togetherness, maybe that would be the wrong way to put it. What should I say, little one? Maybe cohesive? I don't know. I don't know. Well, I don't know. They were fairly cohesive as far as that as going. They loved one another. But when you grow up with nothing, you tend to appreciate. When you, you know, my children always wanted my kids to have more than I had when I grew up. He wanted a big family. He loved his children. Loved being around his children. Loved his children as far as that goes, and he was a family man, every bit of a family man. He did things that, uh, I guess, make them happy as far as that goes. All of Lorenzen and Shira's children have names that begin with L or S, and all the boys bear Lorenzen's middle name. Lawson Bungania, Shamar Lamar Bungania. They like George, George, and George. He said, George Foreman can do it, he can do it. I thought he was joking, till he had them twins. I said, what they names? Well, you know they middle name Bungania. But on March 1st, 2003, tragedy hit the Wright family. Lorenzen and Shara's 11-month-old daughter, Sierra Simone, died. Doctors said it was sudden infant death syndrome, or SIDS. 
I cannot put into words the sense of grief that Sharon I feel at this time. The loss of our daughter Sierra Simone is devastating. We loved her so much and would miss her dearly. That's Lorenzen speaking to the media. He's wearing a black shirt and blazer, looking down at what's likely a prepared statement. Shara is standing next to him, but slightly behind him. Her hair is pulled back in a bun, her eyes facing the floor. My wife Shara is a very strong woman, and together we will support each other and deal with this great loss to the best of our ability. Deborah Marion says she still can't make sense of it. That was crazy. The police called me and told me to come over there and watch my other grandkids. So when I get over there, I'm like, what's going on? They said, they gone with the baby. I said, what happened? They said, they didn't know. But then, I, then they got this yellow tape coming, you know, all the way up down the stairs and stuff. And they tell me, you can't go up there, you can't go up there, but y'all know me and my mother, this is my goddamn son. How's I go in the room? I want to go in, so I want to stay them down police. I want to know where that blood come from. What blood? It was some blood up on the top steps. Like the first three steps going to the, at the top. Her bedroom was like right here and the blood was right here. So I ain't never heard nobody what blood come from on a Sears baby. And I ain't never heard no Sears baby being a few days from being one year old die from Sears. I kept telling them that bitch did something to that baby because that doctor came, I told her, Cheryl, stepmama, and her, uh, Gunya's stepmama, and myself was standing outside the hospital talking. The little fat white doctor came outside. Who is the biological grandmother to this little girl in here? I was like, me. He said, man, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, sure, we walked right back into the hospital. We started riding the foyer of the hospital. He said, ma'am, no. He said, those two ladies back there saying they just checked on that baby. He said, no one just checked on that baby because that baby had been gone for quite some time. Now, that's what the doctor told me. And I, when he told me, I went right over there and told Cheryl's stepmama and Lorenzo's stepmama what the doctor just told me. I said, but I'm not going to tell Lorenzo because you know he would beat that ass. I'm not going to. I never. He died not knowing it. From Deborah to her sister Zetty and Lorenzen's friends, everyone we talked to said Lorenzen had a special connection with little Sierra. This was the only baby that was born dark. Everybody was born red and got to their color. But this was the only one that was born dark. Cheryl said she messed up the rotation, the color rotation. I said, well, you is going to let the other half that make a baby have some, ain't you? That's when it all changed, I think. I think that's when everything in the whole situation changed. Because this baby that they had this time, this little girl that was this time, this was the first child between the two that he had had. The two first two were more like, looking like Cheryl and his share of color and everything. This baby was Lorenzo's baby. Let me tell you how I know he felt that way because when I went to see the baby, I was walking out of the house and he made the comment to me was, Zed, did you see my baby in the house? I said, yes, son, I know exactly what you mean and yes, I did see your baby in the house because she looked exactly like her dad. I don't take it for granted, he, he loved all his kids. He loved all, he loved all of them. But that one like really, really, really hurt him. Zeddy's son and Lorenzen's cousin Trevino Vassar was with Lorenzen the night Sierra died. Lorenzen had been on the road for a game when he got the call. What made me break down? When I saw him, look at his baby. When we got to the morgue, it was a glass. They were going to let us see him, but they was going to show her through a glass. So he looked, he's like, man, no, I need to touch my baby. He's like, when I left home two days ago, my baby was alive, now my baby's dead. He's like, no, I need to touch my baby. He looked at me, I looked at him, I said, 
do what you gotta do. He snatched the door open. The alarm was going off. I broke down crying. I was like, hey, you gotta do what you gotta do. He wouldn't have picked up. That changed his whole everything. I think that changed his whole marriage, his whole thought process. I, I, I believe that's when everything went down. You know, they had other kids, but I think that still went down just like that. Lorenzen's friend and fraternity brother, Phil Dotson, and Phil's uncle, Reverend Bill Atkins, who was a spiritual counselor to Lorenzen, said the same. Uh, you love all your kids alike, right? Uh, but I think that the connection he had with Sierra was, was really, really special. And for her to, you know, to, you know, parents not supposed to bury their child, right? And I can just remember how devastated he was you know, and, and of course she was, she was, you know, hurt too, but you know, never really feeling like he got a real answer as to what happened. Um, I think that was one of the the breaking points where, you know, the split really started. I think that's the straw, the proverbial straw. They broke the camel's back because uh, you'd have to know how much this man loved children in general, then didn't know how much he loves his own children. And uh, the hurt that he had from that was just unexplainable. I mean, he was, uh, I thought he was going to die. I thought I thought he was going to die. I thought uh, I had to do some of my best ministering that I've ever done in my life at that time with him because he, he, he didn't, he didn't want to live. He, he just, um, and, 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 and like Phil said, he never got an answer. I think the definitive kind of answer he wanted as to what happened to Sierra, he, he just needed to know what happened to his baby. From that point on, and, and I could see then that um, it, the relationship literally almost didn't have any chance. Despite having to bury their own child, Shara and Lorenzen's relationship did survive. Their family and community surrounded them with love. The Grizzlies started a scholarship fund in Sierra's name for high school seniors planning to attend a Memphis area college or university. The following year, Shara gave birth to another boy, Lawson, and finally Lorenzen and the Grizzlies were hitting their stride. And then it just took off and Lorenzen was part of that uh, first playoff run three straight years. Never won a playoff game and those got swept in the first round each time. But some were close, but it was it was just terrific. It was terrific. It was like, we love Hubie, we love this team, we love how scrappy they are, and we are, these are finally the Memphis Grizzlies. And, and, and there's no question that Lorenzen was a part of that. And Lorenzen also continued his role as the face of the franchise, often being the player selected to get in front of the camera when the Grizzlies needed a spokesperson. He was vested in his community. This was his town. You know, and, and again, he wore that with pride. So you were never having to twist his arm to do something. One of the things I remember most about Lorenzo, when you go into an NBA locker room after a game, win or lose, uh, there's a cooling off period. And that can be anywhere depending on the outcome of the game from seven, eight minutes to 10 minutes to 20 to 30. So, but it, on average, about 10 minutes. But Lorenzo was always, because you would go into a locker room sometimes and no one's in there. There. So you're waiting. You're just waiting and waiting. Lorenzen would always stay at his locker, and when the media opened, he was there. Tony Allen used to do that too, but Lorenzen was always aware that the need, media needed someone to talk to. If they needed it you know, fast, I mean, you hang around later if you have the time, Lorenzen was always there for you. <laughs>
But the image and persona people saw on television wasn't necessarily a true reflection of how Lorenzen's life was going. So I don't think we had any sense that there was any tumult one way or another in his relationship. We, we, didn't, we didn't know. Um, we knew that they had, um, you know, we knew that, he, he, that they were married and they had a bunch of kids and they had tragedy strike and people felt bad for Lorenzen and, and, and that was it. But um, you don't really know what is going on in someone's life. The millions, the mansions, it seems, couldn't buy happiness for Lorenzen and Shara. Deborah says much of it started earlier in the relationship with the moves and the NBA lifestyle. Did that take a toll on their marriage, or did it no, change him? Or if Cheryl didn't listen to all the other wives that had already been in the league, she wasn't paying attention. She, they told her how it go, but she she wanted to go her way. It's her way or nowhere. She's not been this. She'd rather break than being. Mm mm. Why do you say that? Because that's where she was, for real. If you say up, she said down, it better be down. Ain't nothing else going to happen but down. Because she's going to make sure of that. What did she want and, and it wasn't going her way? Uh, one little reason in her face 24-7. She wanted him to have no friends or family, time, none of that. But I will say this much. She was a hoe. That's Lorenzen's grandmother, Louise Vassar. By now, you know, like Deborah, she speaks her mind. Remember, we told you in the last episode she lived with Lorenzen and Shara in California. You know why I say that? We all agree if I tell y'all one thing. When men would come, she'd get them short shorts way up here, cock a leg over and get on the bed. Lay on the bed. One day, it really it embarrassed me. I had to get the hell out of there. This white man came in there. And she loved to run up and get on the bed. And stretched out. And there was another white lady in there, too. And she just grabbed her legs over talking to the white lady. And she knew that man was in there. You got to know Shara. You got to know her. She, um, she uh, was unique in her promiscuousness. Can I, am I making up a word right? Promiscuousness? I don't know. The girl was... Um, <laughs> you'd have to see her dress. You'd have to see what she wore, you'd have to be around her to to uh, see how she was and how she demanded the attention of men and would want men, every eye of every man to look at her. Um, she would uh, put on the onesie jumpsuit that was so skin tight and walk across the middle of the grizzly floor at a halftime of a game just to be Seen. What kind of husband was he? <sighs> Too good. I wouldn't have, uh uh. And she a fool. I ain't nowhere. I know, uh uh. I wouldn't have first, I would never cheated on him first of all. All the women, you can't see their face. That's respect for you. You know they out there. Because women come to the men, men and them used to go places just out to a restaurant. You'd be surprised. Women just come to them. Because you know what they see dollars? They don't see a person, they see dollars and cents. That's about the money. That's all they sure saw. So he, you, you, you're saying that there were other women around. Yeah. And she knew of, she knew or did She thought. But see, when they first got, got he was, mm -mm. when they first was in the room, uh-uh. Then women didn't come along to way later. She did the do first. She got busted first. Deborah was talking about a domestic disturbance incident that made headlines in August of 2005. 
One read, probe focuses on Lorenzen Wright. Police shield report saying Grizzly confronted wife, friends at gunpoint. Front page. And they saying that they called and said that he had a gun, but when they got there, they didn't find a gun. You know what I told people that I was talking to? My son had a gun. If he didn't have one, he had two. Oh, yes, he did. The police were just his friends. Lorenzen wasn't charged and denied having a gun, according to a commercial appeal article. The newspaper also discovered police didn't post the report in an incident database as usual. The report revealed Lorenzen showed up to Cheryl Irby's house late on a Friday night looking for his wife. Irby's daughter Chrissy was Cheryl's friend. Irby told police Lorenzen kicked in a door where her three-year-old grandson was sleeping, then pointed a gun at a man's head and asked who he was. Irby said he then pulled Shara into a room and she heard what sounded like fighting. The report also showed Shara had a serious cut on her hand and abrasions across her jaw. Lorenzen admitted to yelling and cursing but said he didn't hurt his wife. Irby didn't press charges. Tell us about that. What had he heard? Why was he over there that day? What happened? Uh, he heard about her and some dude. He didn't know who the dude was, but I, I had seen him. I had seen them at the movie, and I stayed laid down in the car low so they couldn't see. I'm trying to see what kind of car they're going to leave in. I'm trying to see, did she drive or did he drive? He drove this black Mercedes. That was him. And when Ren called and told me he had called her, I said, it was, I said, it's a black Mercedes over there. He was like, Mom, what you know? I said, nothing. I said, every time I tell your ass something, you're going to be listening. I said, nothing. But I told you, when you get over there, you're going to find a black Mercedes. And there he was. So he tracked her down. Over, over Chris's house. So he went to Chrissy's house yes. looking for her? Yes, and the husband dude was in the back room. Did he go in the house? Oh, yes. Gary, you don't know how low it is when it comes to stuff like that. Oh, he gonna knock that door down. And they didn't come to the door as quick as he thought they should have came, so that's when he just barged on in. Because he figured, you know, if they're not coming this quick, somebody hiding somebody. So I'm gonna get in for them, then I get hidden. Deborah says Lorenzen moved out. But for a whole month, he stayed at my house. He didn't go back over there with her. What say was you, that like? Say you, if you want Mercedes driving man, you can go on over there with him because I won't be over there. I'd be, if you want me for something, I'd be at my mama's house. And that's where he was for a whole month. He stayed at your house? Yep. What was he saying about their relationship? Just that point? bitch, that bitch. Mom, I can't believe that bitch got me like that. Telling me shit that I've been to tell him. But remember when I told you this? Remember when I told you? That's that same dude. Remember when I told you this? Every time he was saying something, I, you knew this, but you weren't paying attention. You heard it, but you weren't paying it no attention. But he just can't believe, couldn't believe that he could, was going to catch him with his own two eyes. So did Shara catch him? No. But Deborah says Lorenzen's personal assistant, Wendy Wilson, claimed to have proof of Lorenzen cheating. Wilson's name would surface years later when she said she went to police with recordings of Shara that included serious threats on Lorenzen's life. Here's part of an interview Wilson did with WREG just two years ago. They were just very, very concerning in nature, uh, very threatening, uh, and just very, um, you know, just, just very, very, very off-key. Uh, and she was very, very jealous uh, and just very, very uh, insecure. She called Cheryl and be telling Cheryl about some girl she know they ran talking to, not knowing. Only reason she wants you to know so you can get rid of her so she can take her place. Dummy. Mm, mm, mm. What happened to those recordings? I asked the mayor, so do y'all, I, I went to the mayor's office, I asked him, I said, listen, I'm going to ask you one question. So y'all let anybody walk into a one pop, go to the evidence room and get evidence and leave out? That's what you're telling me? They just miss it? Tell me he's going to investigate, he's going to get back with me. I ain't heard from him since. 
Come on, Willa. Get back in here, Willa. Come on, Willa. So you're not denying that um, Lorenzen was cheating too? But they gotta prove it. Prove it. In spite of the infidelity, the loss of a child, Lorenzen and Shara powered through and stayed together. On June 1st, 2006, the couple renewed their vows in front of friends, family, and with their five children by their side. A keepsake book given to guests shows a picture of Lorenzen and Shara on the cover. Shara's wearing a white strapless gown with a sweetheart neckline and long chandelier diamond earrings. The two are sitting in front of a fireplace. Lorenzen is behind Shara, wearing a black tux with a white tie. All four of their boys are wearing black tuxedos, too, with white lapel flowers with a hint of lilac, just like Shara's bouquet. Their daughter is in a long white gown, like her mother. Lorenzen and Shara's vows are printed inside that keepsake. His read in part, Shara, you are truly God's special gift to me, and today I rededicate my heart and soul to you. I thank God for you, our kids, and our life together. Our foundation is stronger now since we've put God in our lives. He has changed me, and now I can really give you the love you deserve. To take you from me would be like taking my heart out, and I couldn't live without you. You are my everything. There is a picture that shows Shara glancing down and smiling as Lorenzen read those words. Lorenzen has a big smile on his face as Shara read her vows. Lorenzen, you are my man of God. I pledge my love to you today before God and our children. I have loved you for over half my life. I think I loved you from the first moment you first kissed me. We have survived so much. We have loved so much. God has given us so much. I will be yours and only yours till death do us part. Later that summer, Lorenzen and his family would move back to Atlanta. He signed as a free agent with the Hawks. Lorenzen had spent five seasons with the Grizzlies and made more than $33 million. So he wanted, and at that point, he had been in the league, I want to say 10 years. His last year with the Grizzlies was his 10th year in the league. And he wanted a new contract. Now, Jerry West was the GM at that point and a legend. And Jerry was just not going to give him, I mean, this contract was up. Jerry was not going to give him another big contract. From a business standpoint, it made sense. His game's declining. We're moving in different ways. And we're just, we're not going to spend that big money. But what Lorenzen had done from a PR standpoint for the Grizzlies in those early years, Glenn Carver says, would never be forgotten. You know, the Grizzlies couldn't have gotten luckier than to get a player with the skill for a big man that he had and then he brought to the table, and also someone who just loved being part of the city that he was playing in and the franchise. And it was, a, it was a great marriage for the five years it lasted. In Atlanta, Lorenzo would be reunited with Billy Knight, the first Grizzlies GM, who was now in the same role with the Hawks. Well, once again, I was, I was uh, with a young team. Uh, I was put in a position to have to build the team again, so I knew I wanted a, a veteran guy that I knew a lot about that I could uh, depend on to uh, help the young guys play whenever he was needed to play and um, to be the right type of influence on the, on the young players that he was around. So um, that's, that's why I was very receptive to, to having him on the team again in, in Atlanta 
with all the young guys that I had here. And um, again, once again, he he proved proved me right that um, he was doing things the right way. Lorenzen and his family were once again in a familiar city. Shara soon gave birth to their last child, a daughter named Sophia. They bought a home in Sandy Springs. It was a bit smaller than their previous home in Atlanta, but still in an exclusive gated community. We met the current owner, Todd Cohen. We told him we were working on a podcast about Lorenzen's life, and he showed us around outside. Well, you wouldn't even know it was a pool back here. Nick Anderson put it in. The other one was still tied up there. So green leash. Lorenzen had lots of dogs, and they were often tied up in the backyard. Cohen just never took down all the leashes, still looped around the trees. Dogs were tied to trees. We also met Greg and Julie Murray. They live two doors down and have been in the subdivision for years, including when Lorenzen's family lived there. Hi, I'm April. Hey, I'm Greg Murray. It's my wife, Julie. Hey, here, to let's, meet you. Oh, let's go inside then. It's too yeah, it's hot. hot. So did you call Todd and say, hey, we're coming? No. You just showed up? Yeah. The Murrays talked to us about the rights as neighbors. Mostly to themselves. Uh, they did have, or they do have, is it six children? Six. So the kids were about out and about more than the parents were. The thing that I loved is when Lorenzen would come or go, he had a Dodge station wagon. I loved his license plate. It said no handle, N-O-H-A-N-D-L, because he was a big man in the NBA, so he couldn't dribble the ball, so no handle. So I always knew when he was coming or going uh, because of that car and that license plate. That was a small detail I appreciated about him, that he did that for himself, you know. I did see them, they would get dressed up beautifully on Sunday when they'd go to church, like gorgeous clothes and everyone dialed in, it really looked sharp. So the, the image from two doors down was a high-functioning, loving unit, is what I would say. The families didn't interact much, but Julie remembered a strange encounter with Shira. One day I was coming home and um, Mrs. Wright had just hit my mailbox. <laughs> And was trying with to her car. yes with her car and and I saw and I got out and she she got out and she said did I just hit your mailbox and I said uh, yes you did I mean it wasn't bad but she was very gracious and nice and said well just let me know what the cost is and I'll and we'll, I'll reimburse you and that was really my only interaction with her I would see him a lot more I would see their nanny I would see the his father. Yeah. You know, I mean, he was obviously traveling a lot, and right. just we just didn't see the parents as much as we would see everyone else that was living there. There was one other incident, too, that caught the attention of Lorenzen and Shira's Atlanta neighbors. Yeah, I think Rottweilers that were penned in the backyard that got out and tackled a kid who was staying at the top of the neighborhood, grabbed, grabbed him down by his backpack because his lunchbox was in there, and the, he didn't get hurt. This is a young Cole. He didn't get hurt, but it was very scary, big dogs. And so they had to call animal control and get them removed. And that turned into an issue where he thought that this was specifically a racial issue. This is a mostly white neighborhood. And he said, you guys are doing this specifically because of my blackness. And we said, well, no, it's because the dog's almost eight and eight year old. And so that was a point of contention. Other than that, Greg Murray said the rights were fairly quiet neighbors. Lorenzen was gone a lot but he recalled one other memorable and funny moment. I do remember they gave out dollar bills on Halloween one year to all the kids. Like there was no candy, but there was a stack of $1 bills to pawn off to all the kids, which I thought that nickname, I was like, I gotta buy, you know. 
he was, they weren't giving out candy, but he was, he was coming to the door like in his track suit and then like, you know. But remember the image the Murrays got of the Wrights when they saw them all dressed up on Sundays, the high-functioning, loving family unit. Well, that wasn't what was happening inside. Lorenzen's friend, Michael Gibson, had moved to Atlanta with Lorenzen the first time around and never left. I can remember on my birthday, we were hanging out in Atlanta and Lorenzo was like, we were at a hotel somewhere, and Lorenzo told Sarah, you know, I'm gonna just walk Mikey downstairs, and you know, it's his birthday, we're gonna hang out for a little bit. So this was like 4 p.m. in the day. We didn't get home, well, we didn't get home, but <laughs> 4 a.m., she finds us, we had the RV, because he has a house, house in Atlanta too, so she, we're at the RV, um, chilling, she comes through and threw a brick through the RV. Now, this is about three years before they got divorced and all that. So I'm like, whoa. That's when I knew she's crazy. So. <laughs> Here's Lorenzen's father, Herb Wright. And things was kind of rocking in. When he went back to Atlanta the second time? Yeah. Were you aware, were you all aware that things were rocky or? Oh, yeah. Uh, his daughter, you know, young young people, you know. Hopefully they would get it together. But wasn't to be. Lorenzen played for the Hawks through 2008. Although his basketball days and seemingly his marriage were coming to an end, the appreciation for all of Lorenzen's hard work on the court and in the community was not. Lafayette High School in Lorenzen's hometown of Oxford, Mississippi, retired his jersey in late 2008. A picture in the Oxford Eagle from that night shows him dressed in a dark gray suit holding a framed red jersey with his number, 42. He's standing next to his old high school coach, Mike Foster. Lorenzen came down. He was so proud of himself. He came in his, in his uh, motor home, and we did it at a football game. And uh, football in Lafayette County is, is big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But anyway, uh, I went over and met him. He drove his, he drove his uh, uh, mobile home. Uh, not mobile home, what do you call them? Um, RV? RV. Mm -hmm. He drove his RV. And uh, he got out, he had a suit on. And, of course, we hugged and, and talked a little bit and then made a walk to the... Uh, he said, you know, Coach, I've done pretty good, Henry. I said, you sure have, Lorenzo. I said, whoever would have thought that you would have done as good as you had back when you were a ninth and a tenth grader here at Lafayette and even a junior. And, uh, but he was proud of himself, and uh, he, had, he had a reason to be proud of himself. He had, he had accomplished a lot at that time. I was, proud, I was proud of him and proud for him. Uh, he, uh, he deserved it. And he was proud that, that we had done that for him, too. The Hawks traded Lorenzen, and he played for the Sacramento Kings, then the Cleveland Cavaliers, during the final season of his career in 2009. He signed with Atlanta, where he was the two years before he came to Memphis. And then it quickly, his career, just a, a few more years there, bounced around a couple of other teams, and, and then he was out. But as you're saying that that kind of happens, I mean, after 10 oh, years. Oh, absolutely, and, absolutely. I mean, that's a, that's a hard pounding on your body. And rarely, especially for big men, because not only 
is that pounding on someone 6'11", but you're getting banged around and you're banging around constantly. Well, I mean, he had a great, whatever it ended up being, maybe 13-year career in the NBA. Um, made his money. Lorenzen Wright made more than $55 million over his 13-year NBA career. Soon, his finances would be in shambles, and so would his marriage. On the next episode of Killing Lorenzen. And Ren was really still trying to live that lifestyle. But at that point in time, we already knew that he was struggling in a bit because he was always talking about, hey, man, y'all want to buy a car, you know, you want to buy this piece of jewelry. He was like, no, dude, we good, you know, but we knew. I would say at the time that Lorenzen was spending the money the way he was spending it, I would like to think he felt, this is what I wanted to Maybe it would have been better to have someone saying, okay, that's fine, but let's, you know, we've got to budget for the future. The fact that him no longer playing and, Obviously, with his spending, you know, he was always a giver. He gave so much and spent so much. I knew that was happening. I saw it in my own eyes. I saw it happening anyway. You know, so I just thought that the houses getting foreclosed and all that was just, you know, it's going to happen. Because she always had him thinking that everybody wanted her. She always had him thinking that he got the best. She went a whole different route from being just provocative to to being downright embarrassing. To me, I thought it was the perfect marriage until the separation and divorce and stuff like that. Mrs. Wright did not receive uh, any regular payments. He would occasionally give her a little bit of money, nothing close to what he had been ordered to do. She was used to having some household help and all of that had to go away. And I could tell him time and again, I said, man, why are you still sleeping with her? If you're going to cut her off, cut her all the way off. And when it all was going down, he called me one night. He was, they, were, they had been into it because he had caught up with a dude. He said, my mama said, you can't make no home, no housewife. I said, yo, you finally got it, huh? You finally got it. Killing Lorenza, Love Basketball Murder, is a production of WREG-TV in Memphis. It is reported and hosted by us, Zanetta Lowe and April Thompson. Our editor is Josh Strawn. Original music, Lorenzen's Theme, by Boo Mitchell and Uriah Mitchell of Royal Studios, Memphis, Tennessee. Cover art by Corinne Zeta. David Royer is in charge of web and social. Eric Lipford handles our file research. And thanks to our colleagues, Alex Coleman, Caleb Hilliard, and Sean Scott for their assistance. Jessica Davis is our intern, and none of this would be possible without the support of our assistant news director, Sarah Van Arnhem, and our news director, Bruce Moore. While you're here, be sure to subscribe to our podcast, rate, and share it.